This is the Lost Mountain Baptist Church podcast. We exist to help all kinds of people find and follow Jesus. For more information about service times, giving, and upcoming events, check out our website, lmbc.us. We hope you enjoy this week's message. It's so good to see you uh, this morning as I know many of us are are thinking about the July 4th weekend as we celebrate uh, the birthday of our nation. I think July 4th is probably my favorite holiday. Maybe Thanksgiving, it tends to have more and better food, um, but it also comes with family obligations that July 4th does not, right? So, um, so I, love, I love the 4th of July. Our subdivision had a huge fireworks, um, I don't know what you would call it, display event show last night. Um, it went on and on and on, and it was awesome. Sharon and I came outside, and we just watched from the front uh, lawn, and we had various kids in places, some we weren't even sure where they were. Um, and we watched, and we went in, and as the night went on, uh, of course, it was late, but as we uh, climbed in bed and were thinking and talking, I started to get irritated that we did it on July 2nd instead of July 4th. That really bugged me for some reason, and then as I was about to drift off to sleep, Sharon was already long on it occurred to me that we actually declared independence on July 2nd anyway, not the 4th. So I was like, okay, that's not too bad. We just published it and made it widely known on the 4th. So I was like, okay, our subdivision was in keeping with American history. I'm sure that was important to them rather than just doing it on Saturday. Hey, we're going to be in Acts chapter 11, uh, chapters 11 and 12 this morning, the end of 11 uh, and into 12. If you have your Bible and want to open it, uh, you can follow along in your app in the sermon notes section uh, if you want to. I ran across an interesting uh, tidbit of fun facts this week about the 4th of July. Did you know that on average, Americans consume 150 million hot dogs on the 4th of July? Over 30 million pounds of meat. I don't know that I've ever been so proud to be an American. That's when I realized that. Jake gives me a hard time. Jake's our executive pastor. Um, because he's heard me say many times that American or that uh, hot dogs are quintessentially American, and so he likes to uh, he likes to razz me about that. But now I have evidence uh, that hot dogs are indeed essentially quintessentially American. When you think about the history of our nation, the golden promise in the Declaration and the Bill of Rights that has taken so long to be achieved, and and we will continue to work at it to see formed in our country a more perfect union. But as we look back, we realize that our country has not been without struggles, as all countries are. It wasn't long after the Revolutionary War, our war for independence, a war of insurrection, as the British call it, uh, that we were at war with Great Britain again in 1812. Some of you know your history, you remember that. British soldiers during that war actually advanced on Washington, D.C., sacked the city, burned the Capitol building, burned the president's mansion. You can only imagine the trauma the American psyche would incur today if that happened and we all could see it. You can think of the trauma, those of you that were alive and old enough to remember that 9-11 caused, um, being able to see those images. It wasn't too long after the War of 1812 that we were engulfed in a brutal civil war, primarily over the issue of slavery. One of 
Um, my favorite books that I have in my personal library is a book called The Approaching Fury, The Approaching Fury. And it chronicles the leading voices, uh, pro-slavery and anti-slavery, uh, from 1820 through 1861. And you realize that our nation was, was torn for decades over the issue of chattel slavery. Long before the war broke out, we endured five years of a civil war. And then not long after the turn of the 20th century, as the world erupted in, in war in Europe, the United States eventually gets involved in what we know as World War I, and we were uh, woefully unprepared for that. Militarily, financially, uh, we were by no means a world power. And there were real questions and real doubts about what would happen. A few short years after that, our nation begins to endure what would come to be known as the Great Depression after the banking collapse of 1929, 29 through 39. And on top of the Great Depression came the Dust Bowl, where there's not only a shortage of finances, but a shortage of food and housing. A really, really difficult decade on the heels of which you know we entered into World War II after the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor. Many historians will say, and are probably right, that it was World War II ultimately that brought us out of the Great Depression. Some of you are alive and experienced the years of the 50s and the Cold War, the silliness of hiding under your desk in case there's a nuclear explosion. Absolutely ludicrous. Bless our government, that's what they come up with, that kind of thing. The Vietnam War and cultural unrest of the 60s and 70s, where to many it seemed like the very fabric of our nation uh, was going to rip apart. 9-11, 2001, the housing crash of 2007 and 2008, the recession that followed. We all know the difficulty of the last few years and political division. I say all that to say this, our nation has endured two and a half centuries of speed bumps and detours. Of speed bumps and detours. Part of me just kind of smiles inside, somewhat out of frustration, somewhat uh, just out of curiosity as I hear political voices in our day um, peddling fear, right? And can I just tell you, if you've got a winning argument, you never have to peddle fear. But saying, if you elect this person or that person, our democracy is going to collapse. Really? Really? But I will say this, it's, it's not just nations that endure speed bumps and detours across the years, is it? Churches do. People do. How many of you this morning would say that your life has endured what you might describe as some speed bumps or detours across the years? Anybody, anybody be willing to say that this morning? Yeah. Yeah. I feel bad for those who would say no because I know it's still to come for them. That happens. Things don't go the way we think they're going to go. And we see that not only in the life of the church, and even though the church is indeed an unstoppable force, and even though you as believers were indeed made for this, made to be part of the movement of God through the church on earth today, it does not mean that the church 
and that you as individual believers will not endure some speed bumps and some detours. You most certainly will. What I want us to do this morning is to look at uh, a bit of a lengthy passage, a narrative passage in the book of Acts, which will really um, book in the first part of Acts. There, really, you can divide Acts into two parts. You can subdivide it, but you've got Acts 1 through 12, and then you've got Acts 13 through the end of the book. And I want us to turn now to Acts chapter 11, and I just, as we go, uh, we'll read through this. I'm going to pray for us and invite you to pray that God would speak to us. And then I simply want to point out a few observations about where God is with regard to speed bumps and detours in our lives and in the life of the church. Before I pick up uh, in Acts chapter 11, verse 27, Acts chapter 11, verse 27, I want to set this up just a bit. The church has been growing. It's grown out past Jerusalem. But what we find in Acts 11 is that those who are carrying the gospel message um, were carrying it primarily to Jews. Others who come to faith in Christ carry it into the city of Antioch, which was the third largest city uh, in the Roman world at that time, you've got Rome, Alexandria, and then Antioch. And Gentile men and women come to faith in Antioch, and God is moving there, and word gets back to Jerusalem. And Jerusalem, the church in Jerusalem, sends Barnabas down to check it out. And Barnabas verifies that indeed the Holy Spirit has been poured out on both Jew and Gentile believers in Antioch, and a powerful movement of God as it work in the life of the church there. He brings that message back to Jerusalem, and we'll pick up this story in verse 27 and read um, basically to the end of chapter 12. So just settle in and let's follow the story as God's on the move. During this time, some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them, named Agabus, stood up and through the Spirit predicted that a severe famine would spread over the entire world. This happened during the reign of Claudius. The disciples, as each one was able, decided to provide help for the brothers and sisters living in Judea. This they did, sending their gift to the elders by Barnabas and Saul. It was about this time that King Herod arrested some who belonged to the church, intending to persecute them. He had James, the brother of John, put to death with a sword. When he saw that this met with approval among the Jews, he proceeded to seize Peter also. This happened during the festival of unleavened bread. After arresting him, he put him in prison, handing him over to be guarded by four squads of four soldiers each. Herod intended to bring him out for public trial after the Passover. So Peter was kept in prison, but the church was earnestly praying to God for him. The night before Herod was to bring him to trial, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains, and sentries stood guard at the entrance. Suddenly, an angel of the Lord appeared, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him up. Quick, get up, he said, and the chains fell off Peter's wrists. Then the angel said to him, put on your clothes and sandals, and Peter did so. Wrap your cloak around you and follow me, the angel told him. Peter followed him out of the prison, but he had no idea that what the angel was doing was really happening. He thought he was seeing a vision. They passed the first and second guards and came to the iron gate leading to the city. 
it opened for them by itself, and they went through it. When they had walked the length of one street, suddenly the angel left him. Then Peter came to himself and said, Now I know without a doubt that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from Herod's clutches and from everything the Jewish people were hoping would happen. When this had dawned on him, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, also called Mark, where many people had gathered and were praying. Peter knocked at the outer entrance, and a servant named Rhoda came to answer the door. When she recognized Peter's voice, she was so overjoyed, she ran back without opening it and exclaimed, Peter is at the door. You're out of your mind, they told her. When she kept insisting that it was so, they said, it must be, it must be his angel. But Peter kept knocking, and when they opened the door, they saw him, and saw him, they were astonished. Peter motioned with his hand for them to be quiet, and described how the Lord had brought him out of prison. Tell James and the other brothers and sisters about this, he said, and then he left for another place. In the morning, there was no small commotion among the soldiers as to what had become of Peter. After Herod had a thorough search made for him and did not find him, he cross-examined the guards and ordered that they be executed. Then Herod went from Judea to Caesarea and stayed there. He had been quarreling with the people of Tyre and Sidon. They now joined together, sought an audience with him. After securing the support of Blastus, a trusted personal servant of the king, they asked for peace because they depended on the king's country for their food supply. On the appointed day, Herod, wearing his royal robes, sat on his throne and delivered a public address to the people. They shouted, this is the voice of a God, not of a man. Immediately, because Herod did not give praise to God, an angel of the Lord struck him down. And he was eaten by worms and died. Let it out, Sharon, I like that. But the word of God continued to spread and flourish. Let's pray. Father God, open our hearts and minds this morning to your word. God, would you speak to us powerfully? Would you, by your grace and mercy, interrupt our thoughts and our emotions? Lead us toward Christ's likeness. God, convict us of sin. Comfort us where we need. God, reveal yourself to us by your spirit through your word for the glory of your son Jesus Christ I pray amen all right let me make a, a few observations as we as we look at a, a large text about how God operates in our lives when things aren't going like we think they should the church continues to advance here but it is not advancing easily and I, I, I want to start out by making this observation that God often provides for his people through his people. God often provides for his people through his people. Often you and I seem to be looking for some kind of, if I could use the phrase, sort of supernatural answer to prayer when most often the answers to our needs in our life as believers, come to us through the lives of other believers, through counsel, through provision, through questions, through conversation. 
Let's look back at this in verses 28 and 30. Verses 28 and 30. One of the prophets that had come down to Antioch, his name is Agabus. He stands up and verse 28 tells us that through the Spirit, through the empowerment of the Holy Spirit at work in his life, he predicts that a severe famine will spread over the entire Roman world. And Luke, who is a careful historian, wants us to know that this happened during the reign of Claudius. We know that Claudius reigned uh, from AD 41 to AD 54. So we know specifically a very narrow time frame in history when this is happening. The disciples, as each one was able, decided to provide help for the brothers and sisters living in Judea. This they did, sending their gift to the elders in Judea, in Jerusalem, by Barnabas and Saul. This is a financial gift that the church in Antioch decides to give in response to the coming hardship and to send probably taken up over a period of time and then sent by the trusted couriers, Barnabas and Saul, to be given to the elders, the church in Judea, Jerusalem, to be used as they have need. Here's part of what makes this so remarkable. If you look back at verse 19, which I didn't read, but you find out that, that they're sending a gift to the very church that would not give them the gospel. They're sending a gift to the church that was only concerned with sending the gospel to the Jews. Now, God gets the gospel to the church in Antioch anyway. And this is one of the reasons that so many people, myself included, uh, believe that Antioch uh, reigns supreme among the churches in the New Testament. That it is in its, uh, a category of its own. It is the greatest church, I think, we see in the New Testament. The response to Jesus Christ and the lives of the believers in Antioch results naturally in generosity and in generosity to people who would not be so generous as to send the gospel to them. Ty Benbo says this about generosity among Christ's followers. Generosity is a natural consequence of God's creation of humanity. In other words, what Benbo is saying is that the very fact that God chose to create human beings is one example of his generosity on display. Generosity is a mark of one whose life is found in God's saving work. Generosity is modeled by Jesus and continued in his name, in his name by those who find their hope in him. He is exactly right. He's exactly right. And as early as the second century, we have writings from non-Christians, from Roman rulers, aristocrats, military officials, citing, among other things, the radical generosity of these people called Christians, who incidentally, some of you know, were first called Christians in the city of Antioch. Generosity has always characterized true men and women of God. Generosity has always characterized hearts who've been sincerely changed by the gospel. You'll see if you've got the app open, I'm not going to go through it now, but there's a passage from 2 Corinthians that you can uh, read through on your own. We'll uh, go more into these observations and discussion this week in home groups, but uh, verses 6 through 13, part of a, a larger picture from 2 Corinthians chapters 8 and 9 that deal with this issue. 
of generosity among the people of God. I often have heard across the years, well-meaning but not biblically grounded enough, professing believers, try to use some of the language from 2 Corinthians 8 or 9 uh, as an argument against tithing, if you can imagine that. Tithing is the, is the uh, ancient practice, God-guided practice, of setting aside the first 10% of the income that comes into your house and mine for the work of God, to be given back to God. And they'll make this law versus grace argument. I don't have time to go into it now, but it's a pretty weak one. Um, and they'll say, well, you know, Paul says in, in 2 Corinthians just uh, uh, to give whatever's on your heart. I said, yeah, that's a special offering that they're sending somewhere else. That's not their regular offering to the church at Corinth. So don't use that argument. It makes you look silly. But generosity always characterizes true believers. Being generous doesn't make you true, a true believer. But let me tell you this. If you find it very, very hard to give back to God this morning consistently, regularly, and faithfully, you need to be very serious about looking at your own faith. Because we have 2,000 years of history and more behind that in Scripture of seeing this over and over and over and over. Let me ask you this morning to think about it. How many of you have been blessed this morning by the generosity of God's people? I mean, can you think of a time when God met a need that you had or a need that your family had through the generosity of another brother or sister in Christ, through the generosity of the local church as Christ's people. I certainly can. We've had that happen since we've been here through people of generosity in this church. And I can say as Sharon and I look back on our uh, journey in ministry together, we can say in every church we've been in, in every city where we've lived, there have been generous men and women that we've seen meeting extraordinary needs quietly, joyfully, and for the glory of God. And that at times has included our own needs. It's amazing how God provides. And he does it here, rare that God does it this way, but he does it here ahead of time. And here's what's also amazing, don't miss this. Look back at verse 28. Agabus says through the power of the Spirit that a severe famine would spread over the entire Roman world, which means that famine is coming to Antioch too. So not only are the believers in Antioch overflowing with generosity and giving financially to leaders and to a church that wouldn't send the gospel to them, they're doing it knowing that the famine's coming for them too. You think maybe they understood something that you and I struggle to understand about who their real provider is? about saying, you know what, we're not going to worry about having everything ahead of time. We've tethered ourselves to the God of the universe. He's not poor. He doesn't struggle to have means. But he often releases those means and provides for us through his people. Through his people. What's amazing about 2 Corinthians uh, chapters 8 and 9, part of why I love them and I, I have found them uh, personally startling at times, is the case that Paul is building there is that generous giving is proof of the sincerity of one's faith in Christ and love for God. It's a very powerful argument he's building there. That part of the proof of the sincerity that we do believe what we say we believe 
is the generosity with which we live. But I want to make another observation, and it's this. That growth, growth always comes with resistance. Growth always comes with resistance. This is true in the life of the church as a whole, historically, globally. It's true in the life of individual churches. There's always a cost for growth. Churches are either willing to pay it or they're not. And personally, there's always a price to be paid for spiritual growth, and you will always encounter resistance. Look at chapter 12 again, the first few verses. It was about this time that King Herod arrested some who belonged to the church, intending to persecute them. He had James, the brother of John, put to death with a sword. When he saw that this met with approval among the Jews, he proceeded to seize Peter also. This happened during the festival of unleavened bread. After arresting him, he put him in prison, handing him over to be guarded by four squads of four soldiers each. He must have thought Peter was a bad dude. Sixteen Roman guards, right? Roman guards, the Roman military in general, they weren't anything to be laughed at. But Peter had showed himself, though an ordinary unschooled man, a force to be reckoned with already. Sixteen soldiers are put there to guard him. And before we narrow down individually about resistance that we face, I I want you to see through the whole passage that we read that this unstoppable force of God's church meets resistance at at many levels. Agabus says you're going to experience famine, and the issue beneath the famine is financial insecurity. That's why they send money, because when food is scarce, food prices go what? They go up. They go up. We know that. They face persecution. They face disbelief. Say more about that in a minute. So the church as a whole faces these things. But individuals like James, the brother of John, who's executed, Peter, who's arrested, face resistance. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, that great 20th century pastor and theologian, who never tipped his hat as a patriotic German to the Nazi party and to Hitler, who stayed faithful as a leader of the confessing church in Germany and was martyred for his faith in Christ, said this in his phenomenal book, The Cost of Discipleship. He said, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. There's there's a a divine element to this that's part of the upside-down kingdom, the upside-down nature of the gospel that doesn't make sense to the human mind, that when we come to Christ and die, only then do we fully live. Only then are we set free from the tyranny of all kinds of forms of slavery, including slavery to self. And Bonhoeffer makes no bones about it. When Christ calls you, he calls you to come to him and die. There is no other way. Christ doesn't call you and say, hey, I'd like to be your personal assistant. He calls you and he calls me to come and die. And I want you to notice something here. I don't want it to be lost on us that sincere devotion to Jesus is rarely popular. Sincere devotion to Jesus is rarely popular. One of the things that's stirring Herod up 
is seeing how popular it is to persecute followers of Christ. It's part of why he wants to have a nice public trial with Peter. He arrests Peter because he sees how popular the execution of James, the brother of John, was. I say this because I think it's really important to us right now at our time and place in history. Most of us in here, all of us in here culturally, come from a background where the gospel and the church in the Western world has had for several hundred years prominence and to a degree a kind of popularity. That's going very quickly now and we're realizing that it was never really the truth. Because God will have no other gods before him. And when you and I live a life that says we have no other gods before him, we're going to meet resistance. If you encounter a version of Christianity that seems popular in a nation or a culture, you ought to examine it very, very, very carefully. We like, there's something in us that yearns for our faith to be so popular. You ever notice how excited people get when anyone in Hollywood says anything at all about God? It's almost like it could make the gospel true or something. It's like we've lost our minds. Nobody cares what the stars say. But you find one celebrity that has some kind of salvation experience, hopefully it's true, we don't know. Um, and man, people get so excited. It's like, oh, now, now it's going to be the thing. I'll tell you what, if it's the thing, it's not Christianity. Because the gospel pushes up against every culture in ways. Every single culture and every single life. Growth always comes with resistance. And if you're growing in your own walk with Christ. You're going to encounter resistance. Sometimes you're going to encounter resistance in your own heart and mind, right? Have you ever ran up against scripture or ran up against teaching or things that challenged preconceived ideas? And then you had a sneaking suspicion that what you were coming to understand was true, not what you thought before. Sometimes we, we encounter our own resistance and we have to say, oh God, lead me in truth. Wherever the truth may lead me, Lead me in truth. Don't be surprised when you encounter resistance. Don't be surprised when in our nation, year by year by year, more and more and more, the church is less popular and less popular and less popular. So it has gone for 2,000 years. One final observation here. And it's simply this, that prayer, prayer is fundamental to deliverance. Prayer is fundamental to deliverance. Prayer is fundamental to, to getting over the speed bumps and around the detours and through the obstacles that you and I encounter as followers of Jesus in the way that God wants us to get over them and around them and through them. Prayer is fundamental. Look back with me at verse 5. Peter was kept in prison. But the church was earnestly praying to God for him. Now, I, I want you to notice something quickly. Skip down to verse 12. Uh, after he uh, makes his miraculous escape, it dawns on him what's happened, and he goes 
uh, to Mark's mom's house where many people have, had gathered and were praying. I want you to see, and you see this consistently throughout the New Testament, that prayer in the New Testament, it is personal, but it is often communal. It's the people of God coming together and praying together for the movement of God in this situation or that situation. And there's power in it. Community matters. That's part of why I love seeing so many of you engaged week in and week out right now in home groups, coming together, getting to know one another. We're seeing people who are newer to Lost Mountain get to know people who are older at Lost Mountain and have been around for a long time and vice versa, learning together around God's word, praying together. Let's look back though at verse six. The night before Herod was to bring him to trial, Peter sleeping between two soldiers. Don't miss this. And this really just hit me this morning after studying all, all week for this. And it sometimes irritates me when that happens. The night before Herod was to bring him to trial. Isn't that how God often works? The night before Peter's to go to trial, God shows up and he does his work. That can be very irritating to us as human beings, that God operates on a divine timeline that we cannot control. Tell me you've not been aggravated by that in your lifetime. Tell me that if you haven't, you just haven't prayed enough yet. To be like, you said to pray and you said you'd hear and you said you'd answer and you haven't. But it's amazing, the night before, Herod's to bring him to trial. An angel shows up in verse 7. Suddenly the angel appears. And when you've seen God work in your life, sometimes after you've prayed and prayed and prayed, it's amazing how he works suddenly sometimes. You're like, man, this door was never going to open. And then it flies open. The angel appears. And I'll be honest, it gets a little weird here with me, or to me, I guess. He strikes Peter on the side and wakes him up, says, quick, get up. Chains fall off his wrists. Now look at verse 8. Then the angel says to him, put on your clothes and sandals. If I have to go to prison for Christ, I hope God's given me the grace to endure it, but I don't want to sleep naked between two guards. That's a step too far. And then he says specifically, wrap your cloak around you. That's, a, that's an outer garment. He's already told him to put his clothes on. Now he's to tell him to put his coat on. So I don't know what Peter was thinking. But I, I like physical space. I don't want to be sleeping with several dudes anyway, and I definitely don't want to be doing it without my clothes on. Jake, again, our executive pastor, loves to irritate me by trying to hug me all the time, and it annoys me. Sometimes I'll come out of my office, and he's just standing out in the hall waiting to hug me, and I'll say, get out of my way, right? So Peter's having a very unpleasant experience. Peter was a manly man. He was a fisherman, a blue-collar guy. The angel says, get dressed. Put your sandals on, throw your jacket on. Let's go for a walk. They go out of the prison, and I don't want you to miss this, that Peter, as tremendous a man of faith as Peter was, who we not only have stories and accounts of him in the New Testament, it's very likely that Mark's gospel comes from Peter, and then Peter has his own books in there. But Peter struggles to understand what God's doing. You ever been in that moment? where you're walking through trial, you're experiencing resistance, maybe things have gone terribly wrong in your life. 
And maybe you're even aware that God's working, but you just don't understand what's happening. Some of you may be there this morning. I just don't understand what's happening. It seems like God's moving, but I don't, I don't know. This is what Peter, Peter's following and he's going along, but he's thinking, I must be dreaming this, right? Because he's a regular human being. How many times has an angel woken you up at night and taken you for a stroll around your subdivision? That's happened to any of you several times. I want to talk to you, right? Because you've got a story to tell or you've got issues. And then it hits Peter. This is really happening. God has set me free. And where does Peter go? He goes to where his fellow believers are gathering. You think Peter probably imagined they were praying for him? I think he probably did. We don't know that for sure. Text doesn't tell us. But I imagine that Peter had that confidence. He comes and he knocks. Look at verse 13. He knocks on the outer entrance and a servant named Rhoda came to answer the door. She recognized Peter's voice and she knows it's Peter. What's amazing here is that the servant gets it and the gathered praying disciples don't. The servant believes and accepts it with simplicity. The gathered praying disciples don't. They're like, Rhoda, you've had bad wine. That's not Peter. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. It must be his angel. Sometimes we struggle with disbelief, not when God doesn't answer our prayers, but when he does. Have you ever prayed something so specific and so earnestly, and then God answered it specifically and timely, and you said, maybe I was just thinking that. Maybe it was a coincidence. We struggle to believe too. But God says, why do you struggle? Don't you know I love you? Don't you know I'll listen when you pray? Don't you know I hurt when you hurt? Don't you know if you could see as I see, you would answer your prayers as I answer them? Trust me. Trust me. And believe. John Wesley, great 19th century British preacher and co-founder kind of, uh, of the Methodist church, said, God does nothing but by prayer and everything with it. God does nothing but by prayer and everything with it. Let me ask you this morning, if there's an issue in your life right now where you're sitting that you need to put before God in prayer and hold there, is there an issue in your life right now this morning that you need to put before God in prayer and just hold it there and keep it there and keep praying and trust? And when you doubt, you preach the gospel truth to yourself. God in Jesus Christ loves me. He who would not spare his own son for me will withhold no good thing from me. If I saw and understood as he sees and understands, I would answer as he answers. I've shared this story once before, but it seemed fitting here to share again. When Sharon and I lived in 
Southern California. We lived in Temecula Valley, which is about 45 miles north of downtown San Diego. I was coming home uh, one night from San Diego and went through uh, a pass. There's a pass just before you drop down into Temecula Valley. It was a beautiful, cool Southern California night. And I noticed traffic was kind of backing up, lots of traffic in Southern California. Now, they built for it, right? So you got six and eight lane uh, wide freeways and a speed limit that's 75 or 80, as it should be. Um, But as I get closer, I see a construction sign. And when I get closer, it's blinking, and I saw in it something I've never, I've never seen before and I've never seen since. It said, two lines, reduce speed, bump ahead. And I was fascinated by that. Reduce speed, bump ahead. I reduced speed, I didn't have any choice, and there was certainly a bump ahead. They were having to work on something underneath the freeway there, and it created a, a temporary bump on something where you'd normally be going 75 or 80 miles an hour. And I thought, wouldn't, wouldn't it be nice if there were signs in life, in your own life, that just said, reduce your speed now. There's a bump coming. We, we don't get those signs, but we do get the certainty of knowing that your life and mine, the greater mission of the church and our church, as all churches, is going to experience speed bumps and detours. Will you trust God in those times? Will you trust him this morning? Will you choose to trust that he will provide for you? And that usually he does that through his people. Will you trust that even as the church is advancing, even as you're growing in your own personal sanctification and your pursuit of holiness in Christ, that you're going to experience resistance? And that's natural and normal. And will you believe so that it affects your behavior and your practice? The truth that prayer is fundamental to our deliverance as believers, to our growth, to the way that we make it through times of uncertainty, pain, speed bumps and detours. Let me ask you to stand this morning. Just a moment we're going to respond to God both through the the practice of observing communion for those who are believers and feel so led and through worship together. And I just encourage you to, to lift up whatever you may need to lift up to God and place it in his good care in prayer this morning, knowing that the one who writes your name in the Lamb's book of life can certainly handle whatever you're going through. Let's praise his name this morning. As the band prepares to lead us in a final song of response and of worship, I want to invite any of you who are believers and feel led to do so. In just a minute, I'm going to pray for us. When I finish praying, feel free to step out, make your way to the front, to the back, to one of these communion stations, to tear off a piece of bread, to dip it in the juice, to move aside, to pray, to receive communion, Remembering that you've been grafted into Christ's body through his death on the cross and the affirming resurrection three days later. And that you can celebrate this morning that at some point there was a new name written down. 
in God's great eternal book of life, and it was yours. When I finish praying, it'll be just a few minutes here. You guys can start moving to communion as you feel led before we move into the next song. Let's pray together. Thanks so much for joining us online at the Lost Mountain Baptist Church podcast. For more information about service times, giving, and upcoming events, check out our website, lmbc.us.